Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truths and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Joint Action Podcast, where we have the opportunity to talk about, do you really need that surgery for your knee osteoarthritis? Now, many of you at some point in time will have been referred to a surgeon. Oftentimes, you may have asked for that, but frequently this will occur with you being underprepared or lacking knowledge about what to expect. Now, the number of surgical procedures for musculoskeletal diseases such as osteoarthritis has increased exponentially over the last few years. Some of these are unnecessary and leave patients no better off than they were before. Knee replacement surgery can be a wonderful and cost-effective treatment for end-stage osteoarthritis, but only when less invasive treatments have failed. There are many factors driving the alarming rates of increased surgery, ranging from system-level factors such as inadequate reimbursement for physiotherapy treatment to personal-level factors such as individual beliefs and education of patients and their healthcare providers. Frequently, referrals are made to surgeons as primary care doctors feel there is nothing more they can do. But if you are a patient that is referred to a surgeon, it's incredibly important to be prepared for what that consultation will involve and what to consider as to whether you truly want or 
need surgery. So that's the topic of today's show. And we're joined by Howard Lux to distill that complex topic. Dr. Howard Lux is a board certified orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist. Howard graduated from New York Medical College and completed his orthopedic surgery residency in 1996 and a fellowship in sports medicine at the Hospital for Joint Diseases in New York City in 1997. His focus is on injuries that involve shoulder, knee and elbow. He's the chief of sports medicine and arthroscopy at New York Medical College and Advanced Physician Services. Hello, Howard, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, David. It's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, it's a, an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It's been something that I've been looking forward to for a while, and it's talking about a topic which I know is very near and dear to the listeners' hearts. But before we get in to the meat of today's content, what I'd like to do is give myself and the listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit better, if that's okay. So can you just tell us a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like? Yeah, sure. So I'm an orthopedic surgeon in New York, an active father of three. I fit my work into my family life. I have a sports medicine practice, but that's focused on care of knees and shoulders, including arthritic knees and shoulders. My three days a week, I'm in an office. One day a week, I'm in an operating room. Another day a week, I'm writing posts for an active website, recording podcasts, or spending time with one of, with one of my kids. Sounds like an incredibly full life, and I really like the way you prioritize family. I think that's so, so important. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, when you're not doing your day job, and this might be an extension of your last answer, but what do you like to do? So as we just talked about, I have prided myself that I have seen probably 95% of my kids' soccer games or football games or volleyball games. I'm always there on the sideline to support them. Uh, I like to have family dinners, and my kids know I like to remain active. I practice what I preach, and I walk the walk, so I'm out running. That is very protected time, and I work out often, and I'm trying to prevent any muscle loss or loss of my aerobic health. And so my kids respect that, and they give me my time to be outside with myself. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think that time where you can look after yourself is so so important. Where do you, where do you tend to squeeze that into your busy schedule? So I'm a morning exerciser. I have a lot of trouble running at the end of a day. I can't clear my head, but when I wake up, I'm out at sunset running on a one of many local trails out in the woods, and if not, I'm hiking with uh, dogs and one or both of my children. Sounds amazing. Hopefully we'll be able to do it together sometime. <laughs> One of the questions I love to ask people, because I think it gives me a little bit more insight is if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? So I put father first. I'm going to put active uh, second. Dependable to friends, family, and patients. Enthusiastic, you know, 58. I'm, I'm pushing 20 something years in this profession and I still love what I do. And I'm flexible. Uh, you know, if you're not flexible these days, uh, you're going to get run over. Yeah, tremendous qualities and uh, really, really inspires me to continue to improve as well. Now, obviously, the main content of today is really about surgeries and potentially unnecessary surgeries. 
in older adults who come along with, in this instance, we're talking predominantly, I think, about knee pain and arthritis associated with that. Now, in the first instance, I just want to paint a scenario and want you to tell me sort of how common that type of scenario is. But a person comes along, they've been referred by their primary care doctor, their GP, a general practitioner. They've had knee pain for a number of years. They're, they're overweight. They're less active than they could be. They're probably not as strong as they could be. And they've got knee pain on most activities during the course of the day, particularly going up and down stairs, but also with other activities. And they've been referred to you with no other provision of treatment provided prior to you seeing them. And they've taken some over-the-counter anti-inflammatories, but they haven't worked. And so here they are, they're knocking on your door. Is that a common scenario for you? <laughs> Only about 15 times a day. Uh, so it is something I see very frequently. Yeah. And in your practice, in your hospital, do you see an increase in the number of presentations like that, an increased volume of surgery happening in the community around you associated with that? I see a significant number of knee replacements occurring in the community. Certainly, I can't speak to, let's say, the conversion percentage, right? How many people that surgeon saw versus what percent of the ones they saw they're operating on. You know, I can speak to my conversion rate, which is very low. And to jump back to that patient that you presented, it's very common for them to present with an MRI, unfortunately, or with the knowledge that they had an x-ray showing bone on bone. One of those phrases that we unfortunately use, and I have a very popular post on my website that says you cannot unsee your MRI results, but the same holds true for your x-ray results. And unfortunately, we initiate a situation for patients where they can't escape these phrases, bone on bone, etc. People think of arthritis as being a mechanical situation that every movement, every time they bend their knee, they're wearing away cartilage. They don't understand that it's actually a biological problem. And to the contrary, activity is going to help them. So I spend a lot of time with these people uh, in the scenario that you gave, trying to educate them, trying to help them understand what osteoarthritis actually is. Um, and then run through, you know, the litany of treatments that uh, could potentially help them. But I have to try and draw them back from an MRI impression that showed 10 things wrong. You know, I start off by saying that no one over 35 has an MRI that comes back saying normal. They probably know people who are running, riding, biking, lifting weights, whose knees look just as bad as theirs. And if I can pull them back off the edge from seeing their MRI or x-ray reading, then we can have uh, a constructive talk about where we can go from here. And obviously, once they've got referred to you and they've got that MRI in their hand, how fixed are they in their minds that they probably need something done when they first arrive? Are they, are they pretty set on what they need to do? And how long does that process require for you to change, change that mindset? 
That's a great question. And I think we as physicians too frequently take the ball and run with it, meaning we have a patient in our office that saw these awful reports and these bone on bone, and they've convinced themselves that they need an operation because of these findings. Try to impress upon them that we treat patients and not images. And there are plenty of very active people with bone on bone arthritis, and they don't need a knee replacement. So I don't want to feed into their thoughts where they've already convinced themselves that they need an operation and then just go down that pathway. Instead, I'm going to start with why you're here. What are you concerned about? Tell me about your quality of life. Tell me about the impact that this is having on your quality of life. Forget your imaging findings. And let's have a constructive conversation about how this is impacting your life and how I can improve that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's so important about reframing their context in terms of what they see the problem is. Yes. Because I think the huge challenge for many people in clinical practice is that MRIs, x-rays are so pervasive. And as you said before, if, if they see the, the report from their MRI, which potentially to them looks like a battlefield, and that they'll interpret you know, meniscal tears as something that might need surgical intervention. And so obviously in that context, dissuading them and re- reframing that whole context back to presumably their original presentation when they came along to the person that referred them to you with, I've got knee pain, I'm doing this activity and it's stopping me from doing an activity that I otherwise love. So reframing that context, is is that something that takes you quite a while in each person that comes along to you? Yes, it does. I'll schedule an initial arthritis patient uh, for close to 30 minutes in the office because these are not quick and simple visits. It would actually be quicker to tell them, oh my God, terrible x-ray, you need a knee replacement and schedule it, right? I could run through the risks of the surgery faster than I can talk about the evolution of osteoarthritis, the natural history of it, and reframe the conversation as you stated. Yeah. And so what's what's motivated you to have that mindset? And you know, it could be about value-based care. It could be about what's best for the patient. I don't want to put words into your mouth, but why, why do you do what you do? You know, it's funny. Uh, I've been asked a few times in my career to give a lecture to an academic center about why I practice the way I do, but uh, I don't consider <laughs> what I do and the way I practice to be unique. It's, it's just the way I think that, that we should practice medicine. You know, I'm going to offer the person in front of me the treatment that I would offer a friend or family member, given the same context and situation. I don't consider the profit motive. I don't consider RVU values, which is a way that institutions will measure a physician's productivity. Surgeries will come, you know, just treat people, do what what needs to be done. Take your time, educate them, make people happy. So let's say you've got someone who's come along, they're adamant for surgery, and you've got to go through a process whereby you determine whether they need surgery or not. What types of criteria help you in determining whether they do need surgery or not? So there are people who arrived to my office with severe knee pain, bone-on-bone arthritis on x-rays, and they've tried physical therapy. Someone perhaps has injected them. They've tried various medications, 
they have tried to lose weight or they have lost weight and their pain persists. As you and I both know, there will come a day in the not too distant future when we're able to subdivide patients with osteoarthritis, right? We have some people who come to our office with a knee that's just lit up. These knees are swollen, they're warm, they're intensely painful and stiff. Yet the next person in the next room has bone-on-bone arthritis, but there's no fluid in the knee. The knee is quiet and they take a few Tylenol and they're doing well. These are two very different manifestations of osteoarthritis. And it's only with time and experience that you learn to separate these folks. Because when those hot knees show up in your office, as you know, they can be quite hard to calm down. So for clinicians and hopefully also for patients trying to understand what clinicians are doing when they're making that decision. Is there a particular language or tips that you would use for people who are out there who are considering surgery, who've gone along to see the surgeon, particularly when you're thinking about the language that should be used or the framing of the communication about how best to try to dissuade people from surgery who probably don't need it in the first place? First, I really have to dive down into how this is affecting their quality of life. Is it that they can't play three sets of tennis and they're only playing two? Or that they can't walk the golf course anymore? They need to ride in a cart. Are there associated medical conditions or problems, right? People with poor metabolic health, so type 2 diabetes, hypertension, a little abdominal obesity. We know that uh, that's a highly inflammatory process, and they're going to have more pain than others. And there's things that we can do with our primary care colleagues to improve the situation. So I have to take into account their medical condition, their complaints, the treatments that they've tried, and I have to educate them about the disease process. As we talked about, this is not a mechanical process. They should not be afraid of exercising and and trying to get the most out of physical therapy or their own efforts. And if we're successful at changing the narrative and reframing the context of the conversation, many of these people are actually quite thankful. They may be skeptical, certainly, but they opt in or buy into uh, a non-operative approach, non-surgical approach, and they understand it may take a number of weeks to months to get there. But in the end, it's surprising how many people do extremely well without surgery. And not unusually, because we get older, we develop many aches and pains. I'll see someone that we walk back off the cliff from a knee replacement due to their first exacerbation of arthritic pain and terrible looking x-rays. And we had a conversation. We initiated therapy. I didn't see them back. But two years later, I'm seeing them for their shoulder. And hey, how are you doing? Oh, I had to come back to you. You know, you told me not to have surgery. It was the best thing you ever did. Right? So here was someone who was ready to sign on the dotted line. So once you create a believer, that's great, because that's going to sell itself in the community and to their friends as well. But this is a hard sell to our colleagues. At least in the United States, we're 100% a for-profit healthcare system. And 
you can't escape that profit motive. You can't escape the fact that many physicians in the United States, at least, are measured in terms of productivity by RVU values. And if they don't hit that threshold of productivity, their salary is threatened. These Press-GANI scores that a lot of institutions use to assess how happy patients are with their physician. Sometimes you can get a bad rating because you didn't give someone a narcotic prescription or you chose not to operate on them when they were sure they needed an operation. So they're going to give you a one and you get two low scores and you're in the hot seat. So there's, there are many reasons behind why surgery may be advocated sooner than later, but it's a tough, tough problem. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And obviously, there are lots of different motivations for doing surgery by the people who actually, who actually do them, as you, as you said. But obviously, you know, a real circumstance here is you're practicing a principled sort of practice, something that you know, is thinking about what's best for the patient at the time. I would assume, I don't know, but they walk out of your room after a conversation that they may not necessarily have been enthusiastic about the outcome of that conversation. And they walk down the road to a colleague of yours who's much more, I guess, willing to sign that dotted line to actually have the surgery. Does that concern you at all, either from your own practice perspective, from the principles of the person who's providing that surgery to them, does that concern you at all? And would you change your practice on that basis? That's a great question. So it concerns me, yes, but for reasons that you might not consider. It concerns me because when we're in medical school, we're taught the basic sciences, you know, we're taught how to how to talk to patients, but we don't really figure out how to talk to patients or listen to patients until we've been in practice for a long time. It truly is an art. There's an art to listening. There's an art to teaching. There's an art how to reframe this conversation and to try and work with the patient in a patient-centric manner to reach a result that will please them. So when I hear that I've, you know, that someone that I may have told not to have surgery goes for surgery, I don't blame the patient. Um, I look inward and try and reflect on that conversation and try and figure out what I did wrong, right? Could I have included something else, another tidbit? Could I have framed the discussion differently? So always trying to make myself a little better at what I do. Yeah. Oh, well, hopefully you inspire others to do the same. But, you know, obviously coming back to the, I guess, the, the nub of the matter, there will still be practitioners who are out there who will be willing to do those surgeries that potentially shouldn't be happening. How do we change the system knowing full well that, you know, profit is ingrained, uh, that motivations to do different things are potentially being driven by things other than what's best for the patient. How do we change the system to ensure that, I guess, high value care is happening more than low value care and that patients are getting what's best for them? Yeah. It has to be through a risk-based reimbursement model, a payment model, which for your non-physician listeners is a payment system where uh, a physician is paid to care for a certain number of patients and they're given a set amount of money to care for those patients. So they're incentivized 
in essence, not to operate on them. The issue could be that you undertreat them too. So this is a double-edged sword. But until we change the reimbursement models, until there's more risk borne by the physician, I don't think that things are going to change. Yeah, no, great suggestion. And we actually just dropped a podcast on that health system reform that you're talking about, and particularly payment reform, where the payment's based around quality and they're capped and they're basically done in a way that ensures optimal care and high value care. And I guess reduces a lot of the incentive away from things that probably are wasting money in our healthcare system, particularly the prevalent use of MRIs and older knees and also the frequent use of arthroscopy. Now, you've just had the conversation with the patient. They've, they've walked out and they say, I'm fully clear about what I need to do. What is it that you've instructed them to do if they don't need an operation? So because of the, the conversation that we had with regards to this not being a mechanical issue, I've found that many people who are still able to walk and still able to exercise have stopped. And they've stopped because they think they're saving their knee. So by having the conversation about how arthritis is a biological issue and actually the biological environment in the knee is more favorable to cartilage in an active individual. So you'll save your knee if you remain active. Not only that, but the five most common causes of death are prevented by exercise and activity. So it's very important to move. They're going to leave with either a series of exercises that, or activities that I would like them to pursue if they believe they can do it on their own. They're going to leave with a prescription to a physical therapist who I know will work well with them to help convince them and continue to exercise beyond the four-week prescription. They're going to leave with the understanding that I'm not telling them they may never need an operation. I'm telling them they don't need an operation now. And there may come a day in three, five, seven, or 10 years when they'll walk in here and say, look, you know, I've had it. You know, I've tried everything and it's time. That's the time that I need to do something. So I, you know, I let them know that I'm there for them. I am a surgeon, a decidedly non-surgical surgeon <laughs> or a family practice orthopedic surgeon, however you want to phrase it. However, I am there for them. And when they need me, I'll be there for them. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a wonderful way to practice and hopefully others can step up to the plate and try to practice in a very similar way. Now, you mentioned it earlier on, and I just want to try to get a metric on it so that listeners can understand it. You mentioned something about your conversion rate. So what proportion of older adults who come along with knee pain end up with an operation? In my practice? Yeah. About 4%. Yeah, yeah. And I think for the listeners who are out there, if you talk about the natural history of knee osteoarthritis, the vast minority of people ever get an operation. So if you look at the natural history, I think most people believe that a joint replacement is in their future. But if you look at most longitudinal observational studies, it actually runs at about eight or 9% ever need an operation. So I really want you to take heed of what Howard's saying. It's such an important concept. You may be referred to the surgeon. You may not necessarily get referred to Howard, but I think it's really, really critical that you pay heed to the words that he says because not everybody necessarily practices in, a, in as principled way as he does. So back to the topic at hand, are there any particular resources 
or information that you'd like to point people towards that you think might be helpful in illustrating some of these concepts? You know, there are some great community boards online. If there is a benefit to Facebook, I'm not sure. But if there is that these groups do exist, there are some osteoarthritis resources online. I'm spacing on their names right now. I'm sure we can plug them in later or in the notes, but there are some tremendous resources out there. Yeah, fantastic. Anything else on the topic that you wanted to say? Otherwise, we'll get into sort of the closing questions for the day. Yeah, be careful what you read. Going online is important. Just be careful how far down a rabbit hole you go. You're not going to find a supplement that's going to eradicate your arthritis. You're not going to find a simple fix. Uh, You don't need copper in a knee sleeve to feel better. And the goal is not to find the best knee replacement surgeon. There are many good knee replacement surgeons. You need to find someone who's willing to sit with you and listen to you and create a treatment plan that's unique to you. Uh, All arthritic knees are not the same. They don't present the same. They don't manifest the same, nor do they feel the same. So we don't know the magic time to operate on people. We don't base it on an x-ray. We base it on what we hear from you, what we see when we observe you. And we only use the x-ray really to confirm everything that you've said and what we were thinking from uh, touching you. And the x-ray we use to plan a surgery in the very end. Otherwise, it doesn't add as much to the treatment plan as you would think. So try and de-emphasize what your x-ray says, uh, what you saw. You can have a life, a very active life with osteoarthritis, and you should have an active life with osteoarthritis. This is not the time to stop your exercise and activity. This is not the time to stop going out with your friends and family and walking your dogs around the block. The more active you are, the better you're going to treat your knee and the healthier that your knee is going to be and the longer you're going to keep your natural knee. Such important advice. And hopefully the listeners will pay great, great heed to those really supportive remarks because it is amazing when the knee is given the opportunity to do so, how much load it can take despite what people's perceptions are about x-rays, MRIs, and what they may may or may not have been told. You know what I think important addition to that is somehow, somewhere in orthopedic surgery, the time frame of six weeks has surfaced. Everything gets better in six weeks. Your bone will be healed in six weeks. If this isn't better in six weeks, then we'll operate. Well, nothing gets better in six weeks, especially after we're 50. Take it from an aging runner right? If I get hamstring pain, I have it for a year. If I get Achilles tendon pain, I have it for a year. My knee swelled up one year. No injury. It just happened. I didn't x-ray it at first. I waited. I waited. I waited. An excruciating amount of time for a runner, you know, close to two months. Finally, I got an x-ray. Nothing wrong. Uh, A friend of mine's a radiologist. He owns an MRI center. He's like, just lay on the table. I said, fine. I should never have done that because I can't forget and unsee my MRI results. So just when I thought my, you know, my running career was over, we're three months out, three and a half months out, swelling went away, pain went away, and I'm back to running. And that was years ago. It hasn't woken up since. 
So if you're in someone's office and they say, come on back, you know, try this for two weeks and come back. And if you're not better, we're going to operate on you. No, you're going to need to give it a longer period of time. Really sagely advice because, you know, I think to do the things that we would otherwise advocate people do when they have osteoarthritis of the knee, particularly around getting strong, getting more active, losing weight, that's a process that will take months. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of clinical decisions, particularly decisions made by doctors and surgeons, get made during an acute flare, um, which is part and parcel of the disease. And I think it's important people understand that and be, be wary of the fact that, you know, no operation is a quick fix. The recovery from it is not straightforward and there are complications associated with any, anything that you do that's invasive. True. So, Howard, I just want to get into some closing questions. Again, primarily to get to know you a little bit better and for the listeners to do so as well. You may not like what you hear. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised at some of the things I do get to hear. But anyway... <laughs> Anyway, this is a rapid fire round. So just quick responses if that's okay. But favorite book? Books are a gift. So I read anything that I can get whenever I have a chance to read it. Favorite movie? I need action. So I love Jason Bourne. Wonderful. Dog or a cat person? Dog. Yeah. I'm pleased the way you emphasize that. (laughs) Favorite quote? You cannot outrun your fork. Um, what is, speaking of which, what's your favorite food? A steak, which I last ate about 10 years ago. Very sad. Uh, story for another day. Do you have a bad habit? Oh, yes. Uh, I chew gum. Awful habit. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you like to go on holiday? Beach. What superpower would you have? X-ray vision. Waiting for x-rays is just torture. <laughs> if you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would it be? You know what? I'd revisit my grandfather. I was far too young to recognize the lessons that he was trying to teach me. Great advice. And what would you do if money were not an issue? Eradicate hunger. Yeah, such an important issue, isn't it? Now, potentially along the same lines about social determinants of health, but if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? Change the payment models, uh, introduce much more risk on the physician side. Well, hopefully it comes to pass because I, I don't think anything fundamental is going to change until that actually occurs. And how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things within your role? Oh, reading. And uh, believe it or not, Twitter. I mean, look, you and I are having this conversation because of Twitter. So while I think that Facebook and a lot of Twitter is accessible, if you really craft your feeds well, you can learn a lot. There's a lot of very smart people out there sharing a lot of you know, tremendous wealth of information. And some have been nice enough to digest it for you and write a blog post. So I learn a lot from you. Uh, and I have learned a lot from you over the years. So I think that social media does have some benefits. It comes with a lot of <laughs> harm, but it has a lot of benefits. Yeah, likewise. I've learned an incredible amount from you. And I, as, as you say, there are some great people who are out there who are trying to do it for the right reason and get the messages out there that should be out there. But there's also, you've got to filter out a lot of the noise and a lot of the harm. You may have already captured this, but I do want to hear it again. But why do you do what you do? What motivates you? You know, I love dancing with my little older folks after a knee replacement. I love to see the smile on their face when they're coming back. It's such a gift to be able to treat people in healthcare. It's such a gift. I'm sure 
I said that in medical school, you know, in my, in my application, <laughs> but it's held true for 35 years since then, you know, successes, failures, uh, it's, it's, it's such a learning experience. And I continue to, to hone my craft every day because of patience. It is a great gift. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to make a difference to the lives of others. And I, I wish everybody in medicine would think along similar lines and, you know, practice so that they've got their patients front and center and making a difference. It's so, so important. Now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it, what would it be and why? Get a second or third opinion. <laughs> <laughs> because it's absolutely essential. As we've articulated in this discussion, uh, there is a profit motive. And although, you know, it may not be front and center, it, it does have to have an influence with people. And many people have conversion rates far higher than 4% for knee replacements. And you have to hear the treatment plans uh, and the message of different providers, because this is not a recipe. This is not a cookbook. You're going to be unique from the person that they just saw before you with the same same looking x-ray. So before someone drops a knife on your knee, get a second or third opinion. Very important advice. And that comes from obviously a really respected surgeon. So hopefully pay attention to that. And in closing, Howard, is there any one piece of advice knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people with osteoarthritis? There is a light at the end of this tunnel. If you are suffering from an acute exacerbation, you're in a world of hurt. I do understand that. As I teach my children, you you probably have as well. Don't make decisions when you're emotionally excited. Make decisions based upon fact. Get to a better place. Get more comfortable. Have a conversation with friends, family, your second or third opinion. You can't undo a knee replacement. It's a big step. Not everyone who has a knee replacement does well. Such a great way to finish, Howard. It's been an absolute pleasure having a chance to chat to you and to meet you and to share some insights and thoughts. And thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. Thank you, David. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, hopefully we'll do it again sometime. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you found that useful. I think it's really important for you to understand that for many people who are referred off to see a surgeon, you may not necessarily need surgery. So be prepared for that conversation. Understand full well what you can do short of surgery. But I think also understand that there are lots of different motivations as to why a surgeon might operate that potentially could have little to do with your best outcomes. So it's critical that you reflect appropriately before you have that conversation and be fully aware of what alternate surgery options are available to you, but probably more importantly, what non-operative treatments are available to you. Having your own knee for as long as you can and protecting and preserving that by best value treatment, including exercise, increasing physical activity, weight loss, and other treatments is typically a much better option than going down the surgical route. Again, for those of you that do need surgery, who have end-stage osteoarthritis, have exhausted those other treatments, surgery can be a great intervention. And knee replacements have demonstrated that capacity. But 
for those of you who are being advocated arthroscopy, bear in mind that may not necessarily be in your best interests. So hopefully you found the content helpful. Really appreciate the opportunity to share these insights from wonderful, knowledgeable people around the world with you. Really interested in what you hear and have to think about today's show and other shows that you've listened to. So please do provide us feedback. Really looking forward to the opportunity to speak to you again in the not too distant future, but in the intervening period, please do take care of yourself. And if you have the opportunity, someone else. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.